I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. It's the holiday season, and thanks to the hard work of many, many scientists, we got the best gift of all. COVID-19 vaccines that work better than any of us could have imagined. There's still a lot that needs to be worked out, and we're in for a hard winter, but we've rounded the corner. To talk about that, and to close out the year, I spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which has been instrumental in the development of a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2. We talked about post-vaccine life, the new variant of the virus in the UK, the pandemic pitfalls awaiting the new administration, and which celebrity he'd like to see vaccinated. Oh, and this is another episode that we filmed, so if you'd like to watch the conversation, head over to 538's YouTube channel. Dr. Fauci, it is such a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you for making the time. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Um, So let's jump right in. On Sunday, uh, the CDC recommended that the next phase of the vaccine rollout should go to the elderly and also frontline essential workers, so people like teachers and grocery store workers. Of course, states can still make their own decisions about who to vaccinate. Um, And I'm curious, as supplies run out, some governors may have to make a hard choice between frontline workers and the elderly. So what would you advise to governors? You know, that is such an individual choice, Anna. There really is no right and wrong answer to that. I think you have to not exclude one for the other, but try to do as much of a division A, the elderly are clearly vulnerable to the serious consequences of getting infected. You want to preserve essential workers because you don't want society to essentially close down because essential workers are all sick. So what I would advise the governors would to be to try to strike a balance between both of those. So you don't say, well, I only have a few. Well, split them up. Get as many elderly people as you can but don't completely abandon the frontline essential workers. Which states do you think have the best uh, rollout plan so far? Yeah, I'm not going to go there, Anna. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's fine. (laughs) You don't want me to offend half the states in the United States, do you? Understood. Um, Some states have received less vaccine than they were told they would receive. How seriously does that impair our ability to fight the pandemic? Well, I think that's a temporary setback. You know, whenever you roll out a vaccine implementation program where the goal is, you know, over 300 million vaccines and you have more than one company, it's being shipped well, the distribution sometimes at the local level isn't as well prepared as you'd like. But I think you will notice that as we get into January and February, things are going to go much more smoothly. Okay, that's great to hear. So now that we have these vaccines, many people have written in asking what that means for how soon we'll be able to get back to life as usual. Um, And to get into this, I kind of want to dig into the science a bit. So for both of these vaccines, there's an efficacy rate in the mid 90s. Can you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, you look at the data, for example, in the initial data from Moderna and from Pfizer, where you had like 95 infections, there were five in the vaccine group and 90 in, uh, so you just do simple math and you find out what the percentage of protection is. And interestingly, for both of those, the Moderna and the Pfizer, which are the same platform, it's a messenger RNA platform, the results were strikingly similar. 
very, very efficacious, including against serious disease. So what we're hoping, since there are more than these two, you know, the U.S. government has either uh, invested in the development and or the facilitation of the testing of six candidates representing three separate platforms. And we will be seeing in the next few months other companies coming in with their data because several of them are already in phase three trial, like the Janssen product, AstraZeneca, Novavax. Those are the ones that are now online ready to come in. Does the vaccine actually prevent transmission? We don't know. Uh, We know that it prevents against clinically recognizable disease as well as serious disease. It will take a bit more time to do other tests on people following the vaccination to determine whether or not some people got infected, had no symptoms, but still were infected. So the question is, if the vaccine prevented them from getting symptoms but didn't prevent them from getting infected, do they still transmit the virus? And we don't know because the amount of protection induced by the vaccine to prevent them from getting symptoms could possibly and maybe likely have diminished the level of virus in the nasopharynx that even though they're infected, they're not very efficient in transmitting the infection. If the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission, what does that mean for us getting back to life as usual? Well, I still think it will, because if you prevent infection in people, in, you know, in 75, 85 percent of the people, then you're already at herd immunity anyway. Uh, it would be much better, obviously, if you could clearly prevent infection in everyone, then it would be much tighter, the results. But you could still get back to a substantial degree of normality by preventing significant disease or even mildly symptomatic disease as opposed to infection. What would you recommend for people, though, even after they get vaccinated? Do people still need to wear masks and distance and do all other mitigating factors like that? The answer is yes, until you get a degree of immunity that the level of infection is so low in the population that there really is no longer a threat of a person getting infected. Because when you get the virus, right now we're having a a massive amount of community spread in the United States. If you get down to a very, very, very low baseline, then you could start pulling back on things like mask wearing and congregating. You can start going to restaurants and going to a movie or going to a theater. But until you get that level of virus really low by vaccinating a substantial proportion of the people, you still have to have some degree of public health measures that you're implementing. There's recently been news of a new variant of the virus in the UK. Um, From what I understand, it's still kind of unclear whether this mutation actually changed the virus in any meaningful way or whether it's just like a functionally irrelevant mutation that just happened to become more prevalent in like a super spreader event, something like that. How worried are you about mutations complicating the vaccine rollout? Well, I think it's important to point out that since this is an RNA virus, we're going to see it mutate and it will continue to mutate. So to think it's not going to accumulate mutations is naive. It will absolutely do that. The real question is what you asked, does the mutation induce a functional difference? Does it functionally change? Right now, it's clear that this new variant is spreading pretty rapidly throughout southeastern England and another variant is in South Africa. And is it 
cause and effect? Is the mutation causing the increased spread? Or are you seeing the increased spread of a mutation that's after the fact? We don't know that, but we need to be careful. We need to follow it very carefully. We know that it almost certainly does not increase virulence. It isn't a more deadly virus, number one. And number two, it's extremely unlikely that it's going to interfere with the efficacy of a vaccine. Having said that, we have to take mutations serious. You don't really have to do anything draconian, like blocking any travel from one to the other yet, but you need to take it seriously enough so that if it does have a significant functional effect, you can act accordingly. At this point, though, you're saying that we don't think it will have an effect on um, the vaccine rollout? No, we don't. Vaccines induce polyclonal antibodies, like dozens and dozens and dozens of different antibodies. So you may have one point mutation that would obviate the effectiveness like a monoclonal antibody, but it wouldn't obviate the effectiveness of a polyclonal response to a vaccine. I want to segue to talk about the future of our pandemic response. Um, President-elect Biden recently asked you to be um, his chief medical advisor. So first of all, congratulations on the new role. Thank you. Um, How do you think the Biden administration will differ from the Trump administration in its approach to the pandemic? Well, I think there'll probably be a uniformity of message instead of mixed signals. I think that's going to be something that very likely will be much, much more uniform. I think there'll be more central guidance as opposed to leaving the states completely on their own and letting them do things the way they want to do it. Uh, You know, and I think there's going to be a lot of attention to implementing the vaccine rollout correctly. Not that it isn't being done well now. I think the current administration deserves a lot of credit for Operation Warp Speed, for sure. Looking back on the way President Trump handled the pandemic, how do you think he could have saved more lives? Or do you think he's done a wonderful job? (laughs) You're trying to get me either in one type of trouble or another type of trouble. I mean, obviously, there have been some bumps in the road. But in general, particularly when you look at the science and the vaccine success, that is huge. I mean, that's something that's really quite uh, unprecedented. Uh, Obviously, you could always look back at your public health response and say, could you have done better? And the answer is, of course. I think any country looking back at their response will say that they could have done better. What could we have done better? Well, you know, I think the consistency of the response. I mean, I've always been saying, and I still say now, that when you have a a virus that's involving an entire country, that to have multiple different states doing things differently when you're trying to get a uniform response and pulling together, you're not pulling together very well when you have multiple different diversions of responses depending on the state. What do you think is the biggest pitfall waiting for President-elect Biden as he takes over our COVID response? You know, I'm not sure. I'm going to try and prevent those pitfalls if I can contribute in some, in some way. You know, I just think it's going to be the divisiveness that's still in our society. I think that's probably the thing that's going to be most challenging. We've been, it's unfortunate that we've plowed through a historic pandemic like nothing we've ever seen in 102 years. And it's been done in the context of a great deal of divisiveness in society. Uh, I don't think that necessarily is going to change right away with the change of administration. So that's going to be one of the things that's going to be, I think, challenging to the new administration. 
So when you have so many people who don't believe that this is a problem, that think it's a hoax, that think it's fake news, when in fact the numbers are looking you square in the face telling us how serious this really is. You know, when I spoke to you a few months ago, we talked a bit about this as well, and you said that you thought partisanship was hindering our ability to control the pandemic to some extent. How do you think we can um, address that as the new administration comes in? Well, you know, President-elect Biden has said publicly multiple times since being elected that he wants to be the president for all people, not just the president for one segment of the population. I think if the country realizes that we're all in this together and that we have a president that is pulling for everybody, then I think the level of cooperation and, and, and uh, response to this outbreak will be much better. You've talked about the importance of, of respected figures like the president and president-elect and even yourself um, publicly getting the vaccine. This is maybe a little bit of a silly question, but if you could get one celebrity to get the vaccine publicly, who would it be? One celebrity. You know, you can't say one celebrity, Anna, because it depends on what your target is. I mean, if you want to get the young people who are in a minority community, you might want to get a, a, a rapper like Lil Wayne or someone to go and get vaccinated. You know, if you get people who are starstruck by movie actresses and actors, you know, you might want Leonardo DiCaprio to, to get vaccinated. I think it really depends on what your target population is. If you want to get nerds to get vaccinated, then I'll get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, all in all, when do you think we can expect to start seeing life get back to normal? Well, it's going to depend on the our success in vaccinating of what I would say an overwhelming majority of the population between 70 to 85%. If we can do that, by mid to end of the summer, I think as we get into the fall, October, November, times like that, I think we will be very close to a degree of normality. That's great to hear. Um, as we push through these next few months of uncertainty, what do you want Americans to keep in mind? Well, that this will end. I think they need to know because a lot of people understandably have COVID fatigue. They're exhausted with this. and. It's very difficult to maintain some public health standards and public health measures when you've been doing it now almost a year. You know, next month, it's going to be a year. The first case in the United States was January 21st, 2020. We're only like 30 days away from that right now. So I think what we need to get people to understand that help is on the way. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And just hang in there a bit more and we're going to be okay. That's great. Well, Dr. Fauci, those were all of my questions. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. As always, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's always good to be with you, Anna. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sinduja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next year. Um, do you have any holiday plans? No, I'm going to practice what I preach. I'm just going to be very quiet dinner at home in a way that's away from people except for my wife. <laughs>